Hi everyone and welcome to For Fact's Sake, the Ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I am your host as always, Ali Bryan, and with me is my wonderful co-host, Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul, and what's on the show this week? I'm doing very well. I think like everybody else in Scotland, I've been watching the events in politics over mm-hmm. the last week with a bit of amazement and people's careers seemingly crashing and burning before yeah. our eyes. Um, yeah, we've got lots of good stuff coming up this week. We're speaking to Dr. Precious Chatterjee Doody, who's a, an expert on Russian disinformation. And we'll be talking to her about how the disinformation tactics have evolved over the course of the Ukraine war as we approach the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. What else have we got coming up, Ali? Well, you might have heard the controversy, conspiracy, ridicule about the idea of 15-minute cities or 20-minute neighbourhoods. We'll be delving into what that means and why it's been linked with some global conspiracies. Uh, What's on Paul's Curiosity Corner this week, Paul? Well, yeah, as you say, um, 15 Minute Cities is one that could have previously maybe appeared on Paul's Curiosity Corner. But instead, we're looking at a viral online claim about the EU and the fact they're going to apparently start making us eat bugs. Delicious. I'm Dr. Precious Chatterjee Doody. I'm a lecturer in politics and international studies at the Open University. And my area of expertise is Russian foreign policy, but with a particular focus on Russia's use of information uh, tactics as part of its foreign policy activities. We're now a year into Russia's invasion on Ukraine. Um, How successful have Russia's information disinformation tactics been in shaping international public opinion on the conflict? This is a really interesting question, and it's one that I get asked an awful lot. Um, But I think there are kind of two sides to it. So if you look at the reaction to Russia's invasion in the so-called Western world, so, you know, across Europe and North America, for example, it's been overwhelmingly negative. And the ways that Russia has tried to uh, justify its invasion have kind of gone down like a lead balloon. You know, nobody believes those justifications. It's been seen as a complete act of unprovoked aggression. Um, But that's not the only audience, I would say, for Russia's justificatory narratives, right? And Mm. some of the stories it's been telling have had, I guess, a far greater resonance in other parts of the world. So Russia has talked about, you know, this being provoked by NATO, um, NATO's neo-imperial expansion is a symptom of Western hegemony, and Russia is just responding to that. And that kind of narrative is one that builds on what it said for many years, trying to position itself as a sort of leader of the so-called rising powers or global south. Um, And it's sort of tried to forge an identity for itself as that kind of vanguard, I guess, of the non-West. And I think in some places, those ideas do have more resonance, you know, places that have a more recent history with colonialism and more recent negative experiences with colonialism are sort of um, predisposed to maybe take that as given, despite the fact that when you look at it objectively, Russia's actions are inherently colonial um, in outlook. And it's even kind of justified them at home as being, you know, an imperial type um, project. Do you think Russia's justification narratives have shifted as the war's gone on and as it's focused on new audiences? Or are we seeing similar justifications as we did last year? 
Yeah, the, the narratives have really shifted at different points. And I think that's one thing you have to understand about Russia's use of information is that it's not entirely like a blunt instrument. You know, it's quite responsive mm. and quite receptive to prevailing conditions and changes in them. So, um, at this, you know, like pre-invasion, Russia was essentially denying that any invasion was going to happen, despite these amassings of troops on Ukraine's borders. And it was preparing its information case, which was essentially to... Um, pretend that there'd been some kind of Ukrainian provocation that it had to respond to. And it started its invasion on the back of these narratives of a so-called genocide of Russian-speaking populations in eastern Mm. Ukraine, in particular in that Donbass region. Now, the use of the label genocide, I suppose you know, is is inherently problematic because that's not what was going on. There'd been some sort of language restrictions, um, and that that was about it, basically. But Russia's kind of weaponized this idea of genocide over time to try and justify what what it was doing and it anticipated a very quick victory Um, and when that didn't materialize I think there was a need to kind of revitalize those justificatory narratives I suppose in response to what was happening on the ground right so then we see this idea that you know um, Ukraine is a, a, a neo-Nazi regime, you know, will ignore the fact that its president is a Jew who was kind of elected on a landslide. Um, we'll ignore that Russia's uh, Wagner Group, private military corporation with ties to the state that has a lot of um, action on the ground in Ukraine, will ignore that they have a very heavy neo-Nazi presence and will kind of mirror that charge at Ukraine. And that is a very standard Russian tactic of mirroring the allegations that um, appear towards Russia onto its adversaries. And shortly, you know, in the first kind of um, first few months of the invasion, this idea of so-called denazification was ramped up to the max and reinterpreted as, as de-Ukrainization. So we got Russian state media basically saying, you know, Ukrainians are just Russians by another name. There's no legitimate Ukrainian national identity to believe in a Ukrainian national identity out of nothing, you have to, by definition, be an extremist nationalist. So Ukrainian identity, the idea of a Ukrainian state, is neo-Nazi by definition and can only be solved if that state ceased to exist. So is that because, yeah, as as you say, because the, the narratives get more grand and more colonial because they're not being successful? Is it a reaction to that? Or because it's not because it doesn't seem to be shifting public opinion internationally. I know there's the two we've talked before already about the two audiences they have, but is it more like sort of you know becomes a the denazification argument becomes more of a anti-Ukrainian argument because the other things aren't quite sticking. I think it's because you have any narrative to be successful, it can't just come out of nowhere, right? It has to mm. tap into pre-existing thoughts, opinions, and prejudices. Yeah. Now, one of the most important historical myths for the Russian nation is the idea that the Soviet people, and within them the Russians making a particularly dominant contribution, they saved the world from Nazism in World War mm. II. They don't even call it World War II, they call it the Great Patriotic War. It is fundamental to Russian national identity. And so even, you know, this week we've seen like billboards going up in Russia basically saying, we did it once, we'll do it again. And and then transposing photos of um, World War II era Soviet soldiers with contemporary Russian soldiers in Ukraine and trying to play one off as, as another. And that's one of the reasons behind this denazification nonsense as well, is because that's a huge source of pride in the Russian national imagination that they ba- basically 
bought global freedom with their own blood. We've heard this being talked about as the first social media war. I know there are other conflicts before now that have, have had huge social media uh, like propaganda impact. The Syrian civil war, for example, is another good example of that. But who's winning on that front? Who's winning the social media war? My perception would kind of be that Ukraine seems to be... <laughs> Yeah, well, so first of all, I will really push back against that idea of this is the first social media war. I think mm -hmm. for a lot of bystanders, it's the first time it's kind of clicked that war happens on social media, but it's absolutely yeah. not at all. So you mentioned the Syrian civil war. Uh, that was, was Social media was a really important part of the way that the Syrian opposition managed to cultivate kind of global buy into their case. Yeah. Um, there are examples prior to that, like uh, Russia's invasion of Georgia as well in 2008 was very much a kind of mediated conflict. You can go further back than that as well. Um, and certainly the Russian regime is very, very intensely aware of the interrelationship between media and war. They have literally um, refined their approach to media and journalism since, like over the Putin's tenure, basically. You can kind of trace almost not exactly a linear trajectory, but pretty much from um, the Chechen wars back in the 90s up through to the present day in terms of the extent to which they've restricted journalists on the ground access through like no restrictions, basically, in the first Chechen war, through some restrictions that you could get around to fully embedding journalists with your own forces to make sure that you control what they see, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so the Russian regime is really, really clear that the way you report a war can actually have an impact on not only um, international opinion, but also on the conduct of said war. Mm. I think in this case, it's particularly clear, right? Because um, we know that an effective public relations campaign from the Ukrainian side has fed directly into the level of international support they've had. And yeah. the key difference, I think, between the Ukrainian approach to information in this warfare and the Russian approach has been a very clear kind of um, personalization almost. So you look at Zelensky's speeches and his speech writing team are outstanding. You know, if he's talking to um, a Lithuanian audience, he will include Lithuanian cultural references. He's talking to the Brits, yeah. he includes British cultural references. You know, it is an absolute masterclass in how you cultivate affect, you know, that sort of emotive, um, heartfelt response. Now, Russia over the years has been talked about as a master of this type of operation. In fact, they're really not so good at it. You look at their information operations, things like RT and Sputnik, they absolutely try and cultivate effective responses. But the extent to which they're actually successful is really questionable. When we're within a conflict space, how important is it to make sure that you're aware of misinformation narratives that are coming from the West or coming from the, the Ukraine side, maybe not necessarily Ukraine itself, but from people on the Ukraine side. Yeah, it's vital. I mean, in any conflict like this, I think re retaining the moral high ground is pretty damn important. You know, yeah. what Russia did was absolutely wrong and unjustifiable by any standards. And yeah. what the Russian regime is very good at is taking any possible hint of Western hypocrisy to undermine a genuine Western case. And there have been multiple cases of... Um, disinformation and misinformation so you know deliberate and malicious but also kind of accidental uh, propagated from the western and ukrainian side generally this is because things become shareable like i said earlier when we feel them to be true 
So there were some examples of these, you know, really beautiful staged photos of like a, a pre-teen Ukrainian girl with a lollipop and a rifle, you know, and it told yeah. a great story about the resistance of the people. And they were, in fact, all staged. And then you see multiple ones, you know, this kid, no parent would allow their kid to have that much sugar as represented in this series yeah, yeah. of photos, right? Um, but it was very shareable because it spoke to what people believe in and kind of backed that up. Um mm. Similarly, recently, I've seen a kind of meme going around of, you know, Ukrainian cities before Russian presence looking all beautiful, Ukrainian cities after Russian presence looking completely destroyed. It's not actually a photo of the destruction. And it could have been because that is true. It's actually a movie still. And that really does undermine the case because then you do get these, you know, conspiracy theorists, tinfoil hat wearers, whatever, looking at it and saying, well, I recognize that from this film. Actually, yeah. it's nonsense. It's all part of this disinformation. And of course, Russia will leap on any of those examples to draw into question the whole story. So you almost have to be, you know, and people people give a higher level of tolerance to what they already believe in. So people who are predisposed to believe Russia and they notice something, you know, not quite right about a Russian account, they'll, you know, pass it off. Whereas yeah. one small example from the Western side and they think it just it just legitimizes everything that they previously thought about Russia. We've touched on the Russian public opinion side of things, but do you get a sense a year in how within Russia, how successful like popularity of the war and what acceptance of these narratives has been? I think it's really difficult to have an entirely accurate picture because, um, well, firstly, as we know, the Russian kind of political environment is incredibly restricted, but also because it's highly manipulated in a lot of ways. So you can see, you know, probably a very vocal minority of people who were completely like ultra fascist, pro-war, you know, where there's the Z hoodies and all this kind yeah. of stuff, these sort of performative pro-Putin um, rallies or whatever. Um, but that is a very kind of vocal minority and also often a manipulated um, group, you know, so like state employees who are forced to show up to these events, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you get the very um, high profile dissenters, um, people like Navalny, who's been imprisoned, various other like independent journalists and activists, again, imprisoned, and they're quite high profile. And that doesn't account for the vast majority of people who you know, it's very hard to gauge what they're feeling about this because you get, you know, we saw a mass exodus, right, when um, when the first mobilisation was announced because there's not certainly enough buy-in to the war for people to want to give their lives to it. But the opportunities to kind of secede from that are quite limited and they're very contingent on social factors, including money. You know, if you can, like, get a doctor, if you can bribe a doctor to give you the medical note, that's one thing. If you can afford to go overseas or have contacts overseas, then that would be another thing as well. But for the vast majority of people, and particularly people from Russia's ethnic minorities uh, and in the kind of ethnically titular republics especially, they just aren't options and it's kind mm-hmm. of a repetition of very many sort of historic elements of this Russian colonial mindset where the people are just used as a resource for the state. So this week on our site, you've been covering the 15-minute city conspiracy theory. It's one that until recently could have been a candidate for Paul's Curiosity Corner, but it's been creeping into the mainstream in recent weeks. 
So Ali, can you firstly explain what a 15-minute city is? Yeah, so basically 15-minute cities are a kind of concept for urban living and existence. Uh, They were developed by an academic called Carlos Moreno. The idea basically is that quality of life could be improved within cities uh, if everything that you needed for your day-to-day life was within 15 minutes, usually by a 15-minute walk or cycle. Within the concept, neighborhoods are supposed to serve six social functions. That's living, working, supplying, caring, learning, and enjoying. So hopefully they would improve people's lives in that area and also reduce the need for people to use cars and things like that, which would contribute to the climate crisis. I think like many people, this seems like a pretty harmless concept Mm. to me. So what is causing conspiracy theorists to become so alarmed about the idea? So the idea was repopularized as we kind of emerged from the COVID pandemic um, and references to 50-minute cities and 20-minute neighborhoods became more prevalent in planning documents and local governments were talking about them. Politicians talking about is this idea to sort of improve and redesign the urban space and spaces we live in to try and make them more resilient for things like that. Some people have jumped on this and sort of claimed that that concept is is part of a broader attempt to restrict personal freedoms. In the UK, it was linked quite specifically to measures in Oxford. So Oxford City Council put proposals in place to, which were then backed, to require permits for private car users to use certain traffic filters in the city. Through certain streets and certain areas, you'd only be able to travel in a private car a number of times a year. Uh, this was like picked up by local campaigners, some people who were annoyed by the impact on local businesses and various other legitimate concerns about the idea. But then it was also picked up more broadly by conspiracy theorists who claimed the plan was sort of akin to quote-unquote climate lockdowns and climate lockdowns are a conspiracy theory that's kind of taken hold again since covid and picked up by some right-wing think tanks and various people in the u.s people who were anti-lockdown initially claiming that because of the impact of climate change the future was civil liberties being restricted by people being forced to stay in place and forced not to travel and forced not to use cars etc 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 which is totally false and not what the proposals in oxford were all about they're about reducing traffic in certain areas but it sort of seemed to be linked to this firstly to climate lockdowns and to a more broad supposed agenda kind of worldwide agenda to reduce civil liberties off the back of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah so this is pretty fringe conspiracy theory until recently but it seeped into the mainstream in recent weeks as I mentioned. Can you explain how it's become more prevalent? It broke through in the UK probably last year off the back of the Oxford City Council measures, which was in the, the middle of last year, but also it was mentioned by people like Katie Hopkins and they referenced climate uh, lockdowns. And it's broke through into the proper mainstream in recent weeks because it was mentioned by a Tory MP called Nick Fletcher. He used a speech in the House of Commons to call for a debate on the, quote, international socialist concept of so-called 15-minute cities. He linked them to ultra-low emission zones, which are the emissions-related congestion charge things that they have in London. But he said they were caught that, that low emission zones cause untold damage to cities and that 15-minute cities were the next step, which would, quote, take away personal freedoms. There doesn't need to be any evidence, really, for what he's saying there. And it seems like it's been picked up from the kind of conspiracy theory side of things and has come through him. Right. And how does this fit into wider conspiracy themes about the growth of a new world order and the idea of the Great Reset? Well, I mean, to explain the Great Reset is <laughs> um, probably more elaborate than we've got time for in this podcast. But mm. basically, a lot of these things get linked back to what this overarching conspiracy narrative um, about what's what's known as the Great Reset. Um, so the Great Reset is... Uh, 
initiative promoted by the World Economic Forum, which is an economic lobbying group made up of mostly like high value capitalist um, entrepreneurs, high value companies. It has a really big influence on economic policy in the world. Um, and there's a lot of world leaders that associate with, with it. They have a big meeting in Davos every year where a lot of um, world leaders go to. And, you know, there's many legitimate criticisms about the World Economic Forum's um, views and the agendas which the, which they push. Um, the Great Reset was basically, uh, I mean, it could probably be described as a rebranding of things they, would, they were already saying, but it's the idea was using the, after COVID-19 ended, the recovery from COVID-19 could be used to um, make changes to the world's economy, to environmental and social policies to help in their words, to help the world recover from um, COVID-19 and also to kind of allow it to set off in a slightly different footing to before the pandemic. As I say, it's been criticized for promoting the idea of handing more power to corporations and for supporting kind of extreme market-driven solutions to problems such as the climate crisis, kind of not properly dealing with inequality. But it's become a sort of catch-all term for various conspiracies suggest that the COVID pandemic and the climate crisis are being used as a sort of cover to reduce civil liberties and personal freedoms. So the people have linked the 50-minute city idea and we could say innocuous reforms that were suggested in Oxford City Council to this broader idea that 50-minute cities, instead of them being um, a way to improve the social and community life of areas and, and stop people from having to travel far away, the aim of it instead is to lock people in the zones they live in order to sort of force them to reduce their carbon footprint and their impact on the environment. But there's no evidence really to suggest that that's what's happening or that it's an attempt to restrict civil liberties at all. Okay, so welcome to Paul's Curiosity Corner. This week we are looking at claims online from some Eurosceptics who are concerned that the EU is going to have us eating insects. So Ali, why are people bugging out about this? Um, what are the claims exactly? Uh, that's a really nice pun, by the way. Um, so various politicians and Eurosceptics have been expressing outrage at a move by the EU to approve some insects as food items. Um, there's been various claims that have been swirling around related to this, with some sort of framing it as an attempt by the EU to trick people into eating bugs, or others, including Nigel Farage, complaining that they could be snuck into foods under their Latin names so we wouldn't know that they were there. All right, so what insects have been approved for use in the EU, and how will they be labelled? So the EU has approved um, a type of mealworms and cricket powder to be used as a food ingredient. Mm. Um, that's not whole mealworms and whole and whole crickets. It's the them as sort of powders or pastes or various other substances that can be used in within foods. Um, in EU parlance and also in the UK, they call them novel foods. These are foods which have not been consumed to a significant degree by humans in the EU before fifteenth of May, nineteen ninety seven. There's a couple of others which are already approved in the UK, or a few others since 2021. House crickets, the migratory locust, yellow mealworm larvae, and lesser mealworm larvae have all been uh, agreed as uh, that they could be used in the EU. It's worth mentioning that whole insects aren't covered by this, so you can technically buy whole insects as foods uh, within the EU and also in the UK. This is really like well, this is quite uncommon in, in Europe. Obviously, it's worth remembering that insects are eaten in whole and mashed up form uh kind of pretty widely across the world 
Um, so Farage said that crickets would only be listed on said on GB News that crickets would only be listed uh, in ingredients by their Latin name. But this is wrong. Within EU law in packaging, you've got to have the everyday name as well as the Latin name and also included on lists of potentially triggering allergy ingredients as well. Yeah, so you mentioned Farage there. Um, how will this mm. affect the UK that given that we have got what Nigel Farage wants and we are no longer a member of the European Union? Yeah, so there's a few things there. That obviously, the UK still is still massively reliant on imports um, for its foods. About half of the UK's food is imported from abroad, and much of the majority of that is from the EU. So technically, in future, there could be some foods which contain these ingredients, which the UK could potentially import. It's up to the UK's food standards to approve or not approve these insect ingredients. Doesn't the EU generally have pretty strong food regulations uh, compared to other countries, particularly you know America? That's the one that's always cited as a an example of quite low food regulation standards. Yeah, the EU does have pretty strong food regulation generally. There's a few things specifically that in America they are allowed to eat or use within foods. One of the big ones is brominated vegetable oil, which is used in some soft drinks in America that is banned in the EU. Obviously, a lot of things related to GMOs over the years um, yeah. have been allowed within America that aren't allowed in the EU. The worry before the Brexit referendum from many people within food standards was that the UK's food standards would reduce rather than increase after Brexit happened. And while eating insects or insects being part of food ingredients might be kind of unusual and odd and a bit weird for people within the UK, it's not really a health issue and it's particularly not uncommon if you look around the world. That's all we've got time for for this episode of For Fact's Sake. Thanks everyone who's been liking and rating the podcast five stars on various podcast platforms. It really does help. So if you do have enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can get in contact with us at factcheckattheferret.scot if you have any questions or any suggestions for what we should be talking about on the podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us another way, how would you do that, Paul? Well, you can go to our community forum, which is at wow. community.theferret.scot, and you can interact with our journalists. Ali and I are there 24-7 to take your questions. And, yeah, we're never off there, really. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.